Welcome to On The Time Lash, episode 135. Jesus Christ. Um, and uh, unfortunately, um, it's me introducing this episode, unfortunately for all of you, um, because um, Ben is unable to, to make the podcast um, because he's in Patagonia. But, I mean, partly because we'd already booked him as a, booked him as a guest. We're not paying him for this. <laughs> um, I've got I've got a new co-host for one episode only. Please welcome from the Too Hot for TV podcast, Dylan Race. Hello, and uh, I'm very glad to be here in much the uh, same style as you come on to Too Hot for TV as a sort of standing co-host when the regular hosts are caught doing cocaine and listening to rap music with hookers, <laughs> as, as we've said many times before. So it's it's really nice that while. Ben's in Patagonia being a very naughty boy. (laughs) Well, it's very good to have you. And, I mean, because it's a contractual obligation, uh, (laughs) because we're doing The Haunting of Villa Diodati. We've got to that in our new Who Watch Through. Um, And I thought, why not pair it up with the other time the Doctor and Mary Shelley met a Cyberman, which is the Silver Turk. And, you know, contractual obligation, big finish, expanded universe, called on you. I am Mr. Expanded Universe, which is nothing like being Mr. Universe. In fact, it it revolves around being as unfit as you possibly can be. (laughs) It is audio, Dylan. You could have kept your top on, but... I'm actually doing weights while we we do this podcast. I'm just lifting up Big Finish's back catalogue, and it's the most anybody's ever lifted ever. And it it gets heavier and heavier (laughs) as the days go by. It does indeed. It does indeed. The Haunting of Villa Diodati, written by Maxine Alderton um, and directed by Emma Sullivan, was broadcast on BBC One on the 16th of February 2020. More on that later. That was so recent, though, wasn't it? That was like when I feel like this is five years old, and that is literally two years ago. Sorry, anyway, carry on. It's been a long couple of years. Let's it has. Then we can both say that. Um, so, uh, the episode was watched by... 5.7 million viewers. I'm literally just taking this from the wiki. Um, I'm not even the TARDIS wiki. So I'm assuming that's overall rather than overnight. Yeah, I would I would suspect so. But that's dull. That's dull dry broadcast dates, ratings. It's time. And I guess you're going to be filling in for Ben here as we play... Amazing. What an honour. You're not, basically, no matter what you do, Ben's still going to lose. It's Degsy's game of Barcelona <laughs> in that regard. Um, okay, great. Well, I look forward to losing on his behalf, even if I win. Um, so it's a big Doctor Who poll. Um, it's everything from an unearthly child to the timeless children. So even this is coming mm. to a bloody end as well. Of course. Um, where do you think the haunting of Villa Diodati comes in the uh, big Doctor Who poll? I'm going to say it's the highest, if not highest rated, Jodie Whittaker. Um, and I would probably, I'm going to go 57. Because I, okay. I don't think the general consensus has quite pushed any of those episodes super high up yet. I could be wrong. And also this was done, I think, in lockdown. So the first right. lockdown. Um, so... Yeah, I think you're probably right, because I think at this point, 
it's kind of the best one. Yeah. And possibly, I think, I mean, it's it's sort of vying with the Witchfinders for me for kind of overall kind of top two Jodie Whittaker stories. Interesting. I might have something to say about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, what did you say, 50? 57, I think. 57. Yeah. I'm going to be slightly more optimistic. I'm going to go 47. But let's find out who's right as I open the golden envelope. So the Dexestial Funmaker says, All right, lads, here's one for you. In which film does Hideo Amamato play Doctor Who and Nateo Carino play Doctor Who's assistant? Don't look it up, I'll tell you later. Oh, it's that it's that Turkish Doctor Who is it? type thing, isn't it? But is was it that not? not a spoof? Like did that not turn out to be just uh, some guys on YouTube or something? Oh, I genuinely thought that was real. Uh, it's not one of the porn films in it, like Doctor Screw or something like Doctor, that. But then it would be Doctor Screw, wouldn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, of course, yeah. And I mean, Hideo Amamato doesn't really sound like a porn name, does it? Oh, uh, yeah, no, that's true. That's like kind of, you know, Japanese character actor, you know. Yeah. He's, he's done the rounds. I feel like it might be like a one of the Toho Studios. Oh, really? Kind of. So you see what I've done there? I've just gone foreign. We're doing the Silver Turk. And just gone, it must be the Turkish thing. Probably just been a bit racist, which is, I guess, sorry, Ben, for filling in and becoming a racist. Well, you can make up for Ben, because in the poll, the haunting of Villa Diazati is at number 97. Oh. So you are the closest. That's very low. Like, shame on you, Doctor Who fans. Shame on you. Between Invasion of the Dinosaurs, another underrated classic yeah and the christmas carol at 98 i mean i, I really like the christmas carol so uh, doctor who fans of uh, the pandemic you're all bloody wrong do you want to play a game of degsy's ding dong ping pong oh this is exciting because it, it's always so easy at home but i know under pressure it's going to be terrible This is Doctor Who story titles that contain four or more words. Oh, fucking hell. <laughs> uh, the Count. Uh, and Derek says, I don't think we've done that. Um, there's a few, but I'm hoping this will be a three-player game. Uh, <laughs> so were we, but unfortunately, yeah. um, real life has intervened. This is some proper inside baseball here. <laughs> isn't it? Um, so the Ambassadors of Death. Planet of the Dead. The Family of Blood. Demons of the Punjab. Nice. Uh, Terror of the Autons. It Takes You Away. Oh, damn it. That was going to be my next one. Uh, <laughs> now, see, the thing is, is it Invasion of the Dinosaurs? Uh, or is it I the Invasion? It, I, think I think it's think Invasion it, of the Dinosaurs because it I comes think, up Invasion in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spoiled, it, yeah, right? yeah, you're good. Survivors of the Flux. Nice, <laughs> <laughs> nice. The Haunting of... Oh, no way, that's... No, no that, that, that's five. That's, that's five. five. Oh. Fucked it. Fucked it. <laughs> Another point to Ben. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to stand in for him. <laughs> what, I was going to go Dalek stories next, because you've got Power of the Daleks, Evil of, of the Daleks, Death to the... Resurrection of the Daleks. Yeah, yeah shit. That, that was like, that. I was going to get the first view in, and then I'm, I was going Dalek heavy. <laughs> that's, uh, you had no you chance. Should, you, you should never go Dalek heavy. <laughs> Uh, right, so we get some listener correspondence. I mean, uh, one, one of you is already here. 
Just others out there. My my Twitter's been popping off with people having opinions on this story. Good. If I miss any, you should let me know. <laughs> uh, so we have, first of all, because this, uh, this made me laugh. So Deborah has been in touch saying, The haunting of Villa Diodati uh, loses some of its shine for me when it's setting up the finale. But when it's focused on building atmosphere and character, it's justifiably confident. Also, the ghost sandwich is the funniest thing in the entire Chibnall era. I still yeah. think about it every lunchtime. It is good. <laughs> and I was like, when Deborah sent that, I was like, I bet there's some like dessert stout or something somewhere <laughs> by some <laughs> arsehole craft beer brewery called Ghost Sandwich. There's, there's not. No. Unfortunately Damn. not. Well, we'll find out what you've picked shortly, I'm sure. We will. We will indeed. Um, Andrew Blair says, um, it's fantastic until after Rashad's poetry reading. Um, then it's just people shouting the trolley problem at each other to set up the series finale. Uh, the People's Poet uh, says, I missed the haunting of Villa Diodata the first time round. I watched this episode the day after Power of the Doctor, which was an absolute hot mess, but I loved so much in it. Um, the Whitaker era has done historical so well, and this is one of the best. Um, the guest cast, direction and lighting all come together to create a wonderfully atmospheric episode. Jodie shines in these scenarios and Bradley is always worth the entrance fee. The concept of the Lone Sire Man works well here, right down to his dismissive sneering. He's another creation of the era that seems to work so well when first introduced, but never lives up to his future potential. But here, he's great. Um, this is probably the episode I would make Jodie Skeptic's watch. It's brilliant and I miss her already. See, that's nice. That is nice. Um, just incidentally, and again, I keep jumping in. This That's is right. the this is the episode that made my girlfriend stop watching the Jodie Whittaker era. She just finally got fed up with this one. So there you go. Why this one in particular? <laughs> just didn't like it. <laughs> that was it. That was the reason. yeah. She was just, she was just like I'm done. <laughs> Halfway through, she was just like I don't like it. It's not the same as it used to be. I'm done. Um, your brother has been in touch. Has, has he? What's he got to say? I bet it's witty, thoughtful and insightful. <laughs> uh, Jodie's defining role is the Doctor. She brings authority, humour and strength while remaining an outsider. Um, Ashad is one of the series' all-time best villains and should be a regular fixture for all future cyber stories. The haunting of Villa Diodati is perfect Doctor Who. Ah. There you go. Uh, Mark Harrison continues with uh, the undisputable high point of Series 12. Uh, not only better and playfully darker than the episodes around it, but a reinstatement of the missing bits that make New Who sing. The companions have something to do. The Doctor's clever. Byron has, Byron has a stupid funny crush. Uh, Maxine Alderton takes the brief of the Terminator, but a period drama. Gives it, loads more... <laughs> <laughs> gives it loads more character. Like our next episode, the ending is curtailed a bit by the need to cliffhanger into a load of old Chibnall, but I really hope she comes back to write for RTD2. <laughs> So Tom Turlow says, um, I think the Chibnall era is mostly an endless morass of mediocrity. <laughs> episode after episode of distinctly okay, but just okay stuff. The Haunting of Villa Diodati, however, is one of the better ones. It's not a barnstormer, but it's pretty good. It's one of Jodie's better performances where she shows the odd glimpse of inner steel that's usually lacking. Because hey, it's a Cyberman story. <laughs> uh, the Lone Cyberman is a compelling visual image, even if, in the end, the character never quite amounted to anything. It's visually impressive and quite stylish. Like most of the best Chibnall episodes, it's good, but not outstanding. But measuring on a scale that makes it, for this year of the show, pretty impressive. <laughs> okay, interesting. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. I know. Um, what are you drinking for this for this half of the episode? So, um, I mean, I was in a bit of a rush. 
uh, and I think I've I think I've got something better for the next one. But um, so I'm drinking a Brewdog Punk IPA, um, which you may go, why is that kind of related to this story? And it's just because. I've always thought that uh, Punk IPA is a bit overrated and don't get the fuss, and I kind of feel a little bit about uh, a bit, little bit like that about this story. So <laughs> I'm not gonna I, I, like. I'll drink it. I'll drink it. <laughs> I'll, I'll watch it and enjoy it. But for me, it's not the best Jody story. In fact, it's not even the best one in this season as far as as far as I'm concerned but you know we'll we'll get into it with the with the review well I'm drinking because uh, I find it quite hard because I was like right Frankenstein do I make myself a zombie but I mean it's a Tuesday evening that's a <laughs> bit full on and I don't have any rum in the house let alone two different types of rum um, so I in the end went for a f- kind of 50-50 IPA uh, by the Boxing Brewery, because that's what a shad is, really, isn't he? <laughs> half there we go. Kind of half side, man. That, that's better than my sort of shit review in a beer. <laughs> I mean, shit review in a beer is basically this podcast. More <laughs> I do think this is a better story than Fugitive of the Jadoon, but much like that... Uh, for me, it relies on the impact of the first watch and it, it, it's kind of diminishing returns each time round. And for me, it's a precursor to something much bigger, much like Utopia and Face the Raven. So in f- every time I watch Face the Raven, I'm just treading water until um, until Clara dies. Utopia, I'm just treading water until the master reveal. It's the last five, ten minutes. What I will say about this is I'm just treading water until... Ashad shows up, which is about twenty minutes from the end, so there's more of it that I'm I'm there for. But I just find I couldn't tell you the difference between any of the guest cast. I think they're all underserved. I think I like the regulars. I think they're all great in it. But for me, I'm just with the exception of Ashad, I'm generally left feeling a bit cold by this one. Um, but then also, I think my favourite episode of the era is probably the episode that's after it, Ascension of the Cybermen. So. Um, I'm, I'm a huge fan. That's everything I want my, my, my Cybermen stories to be. Um, Interesting. So I'm a little I'm a little cold on it. I'm aware it's not shit. It is fundamentally it does <laughs> it, it does what it needs to do, and lots of people love it. But I've never quite got the the love for it. I really love it because I think I I think like I kind of said this about um, Fugitive of the Judoon, Um in that actually. You know, if you take it out of the context of, you know, what it sets up, quote unquote, mm. which is bugger all, um, you know, as we find <laughs> out, um, I think actually there there is quite a fun idea at the heart of the Doctor, sort of being on Earth to kind of rescue yeah. somebody that actually turns out to be them, yeah, in another life. I think yeah. that's a really good concept for a story. And again, this I don't think really the the fact that it kind of teases up the finale mm. hinders it too much no it doesn't it doesn't hinder it but it's I, I i think i'm talking more about on repeat viewing like i am just waiting for ashad to show up and it for, for sure. it to really really kick off and maybe that's my problem rather than the problem of this this episode 
I, and as a run of episodes, I think it's solid. But as a singular episode, I, I, for me, it's the weaker one of the three, I would say. Um, in fact, if I was running it in a run of four, I would even say I possibly prefer the Dalek story that uh, fin- finishes things off to this one. But And I'm not trying to be like, oh, I'm so cool and l- look <laughs> at me. I don't like this one. And I, as long as John Barrowman's in it, it's great. But I just... I. I <laughs> I loved it on its first. I loved this story on its first broadcast, and I watched it again a couple of times recently before I even knew um, that I was coming on to do this episode. And I have been, I've been left somewhat cold by it. Okay, I mean, I, I think definitely for me, it was this, the second time I've watched it. Actually, um, was this week, yeah. um, and I think the impact's lessened slightly, but I still there's so much I enjoy about it mm. to the point that it's. I, I kind of found new things to like. Like my favourite performance, jumping ahead, is Fletcher. Right. Because <laughs> I love, like, there's there's something really great in the concept of the Doctor and their companions turning up to, you know, oh, it's Mary Shelley and Lord Byron and this is the night they create Frankenstein and they're all just getting drunk and playing, like, stupid party games and yeah. the butler looks very annoyed and kind of just like, look at these fucking privileged... Young, yeah, young just, swingers. Yeah, it's great. I, I love that idea because it's like, yeah, they might be great literary minds, but Lord Byron shagged his sister. I mean, that's <laughs> get out of the way now. Why uh, didn't they cover that in the episode? I don't know. I don't know. Weird, weird. Maybe that was implicit in the doctor's don't kiss. Don't stop Byron. <laughs> you don't know where he's been. What a guy. Um, I t- like a lot of people have said it's Jodie's best performance, and she's great at it. And especially at the end, where she's got a lot of exposition to get through that could be clumsy, but it doesn't mm. feel forced. But I actually think, to me, that's a bit of kind of a, a weak observation because I think Jodie's consistently been smashing it for ages. I do think the material here is slightly stronger than in some episodes, but I just I, I don't think she's any stronger here than in any other episode because I think she's been you know running with a tank on full for ages and and I agree with you on that because I think um, we've talked about it this sort of during the Whitaker era of this podcast is that I think what people want from their Doctor Who mm. is kind of more informed by your David Tennant's and Matt Smith's and Peter Capaldi's than it is your Tom Baker's and John Pertwee's and Patrick's yeah. And Jodie Whittaker's, I think, much more kind of in line with that kind of freewheeling adventurer. So that yeah. when you get an episode where she's like pitted face to face with like one on one with a Cyberman, yeah. and she's like doing really well with it, people go, she's had a doctorish moment now. <laughs> it's come at last. I, I think Jodie's um, characterization is something, and this is in the writing as well is that it's entirely informed by New Doctor Who. New Doctor Who's so old now that mm. you're only informed by the, the bits of it that worked before. There's no point. Like, Capaldi was the last one of those Doctors where it's like, oh, it's a bit McCoy, it's a bit Tom Baker, whatever. Like, I don't... And I don't think, you you know, I think with Shooty Gatwa you'll get a similar thing. I don't think it'll be informed by William Hartnell or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> Shooty Gat was just wandering around with his, you know, lapels. <laughs> you never know. But I do think that the 13th Doctor's characterization is a bit more... This is why I've always had issues with the Timeless Child arc, sort of spoiling the next mm. episode of the podcast, but I think it takes away 
what the thing that I've always quite liked about the Doctor is that Wait. they're not this kind of great big mythical hero. Mm. And they're not kind of weighed down by all this trauma, you know. It's I've never really been all that interested in that as a concept. The, I mean, again, we're, we're, this is not strictly part of this episode, but I, I, I agree with you on the whole part. But I don't think the child, Timeless Child necessarily... Like, it has her as the blueprint for Time Lord Society, and there's hints that she's got up to some gnarly shit, but who didn't when they were younger? Um, <laughs> I, I don't... I, my view on it is that it adds a mystery but doesn't fundamentally change the character from a bit of a bumbling idiot going around the universe saving people, which is how I like my Doctor Who to yes. a large sure. extent. And that's what you get here, so what's your fucking problem? <laughs> <laughs> it's, I changed my mind. It's the best episode ever. Uh, again, there's there's nothing there's there's nothing particularly wrong with it. I just think it takes too long to where it needs where it's trying to go. I'm not sold on the guest cast particularly. Like they, there's some nice moments. I think it's a great showcase for Graham and Yaz and Ryan. Um, like they all get lots to do, and obviously Graham gets all these wonderful lines, the sandwich line, and what's mm. the what's the other one he says about? Um, oh, there's no such thing as ghosts, and uh, the doctor says there's no such thing as ghosts, and he just goes, oh well, I guess this guy's just in need of a suntan and a nap or something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, yeah, I Bradley miss, Walsh I, is great. Like, I, I, I miss I miss him. Like um, <laughs> I, I would be happy if Bradley Walsh was just a reoccurring character that showed up a few episodes every every season. I think he would. He just adds a levity to everything that I, I, I didn't necessarily get from John Bishop. Yeah, that's because I feel like Bishop was trying to. And I think Chibnall writing him was trying to move away from that. Oh, he's a stand-up comedian. Let's give him loads yeah. of funny shit to do. Yeah. Um, whereas actually, you know, Bradley Walsh, sure, he's a light entertainer, but he is an actor. He's, you know, yeah. he's in Coronation Street for decades. He was in um, Law and Order. You know, he he can act. So yeah. actually what, what Walsh brings out is that kind of great balance of the kind of the, the drama and the laughs and the... Because and, this is very funny. Yes, it is. And... I think also I find as I'm rewatching the Whitaker era along with On the Time Lash that it's a lot fun the, the whole era in itself is a lot funnier than I remember it. It's just not the kind of laugh out loud all the time, joke every second that um that I guess Stephen Moffat delivered to a lot of a lot of extent. But I do think it's always funnier in episodes like this that aren't perhaps written by Chris Chibnall. I do, I do like the kind of less showy comedy because yeah. again it kind of taps into that kind of classic doctor like you know I mean with the exception of Tom Baker mm. they weren't all just like kind of looking to camera and <laughs> waka waka <laughs> doing a joke now like you know Tennant was sometimes guilty of like kind of like you say the kind of Moffat scripts are kind of very obviously like kind of sitcom setups because that's yeah. his background you know of course. Whereas this is a lot... I mean, apart from the sort of very young Frankenstein opening, where yes. they open the door and they're all screaming at each other, which it's is great. great. I love that. It's, it's a fantastic moment, and in no other era of Doctor Who would you have had them both being scared. It would have been the Doctor doing a big heroic pose or something. Yeah. 
<laughs> and going, hi, I'm the Doctor. And everybody going, ah, like that. But in this one, it's like, of course, it's a storm. Everybody's shit scared. So why yeah. wouldn't you be petrified of each other as yeah. the, the thunder and lightning goes off? And then it kind of turns on a dime when Ashad turns up. Yeah, what a guy. And I think it kind of works. I think it works. I think it's, it's that thing. I think what I love about this story is that it's everything I want my Doctor Who to be. Right. So it's like the Doctor is the hero, but not the kind of... I mean, apart from that kind of, oh, yeah, it's not a flat... It's not a fucking flat team structure. It's got loads of fucking yeah. mountains, and I'm the one at the fucking top, boys. <laughs> apart from that bit, there's, you know, it's it's kind of the unassuming heroic Doctor. Um, there's a lot of laughs in it. There's some great atmospheric stuff done. Yeah. And it's got, like, it does, I think the most interesting thing the new series has done with the Cybermen, which is is a shad. Yeah. I mean, he's by far the best thing ab- about this um, and sort of leading into the next episode as well. Like, it's just a great take on the Cybermen that you've got one. that, And ultimately, it's kind of what the Cybermen have been missing for a long time. It's a bit of emotion, which I know they're not mm. supposed to have that, but... The fact that the 80s Cybermen had some sort of tap into the emotion kind of made them a little bit more interesting. And I know you can put that down to bad writing in the 80s or whatever, but uh, <laughs> I choose to think that it was it was a choice. And they give them this... It's this sort of Davros figure who actually not only has regained a certain amount of emotion, but doesn't give a fuck. And it's like, no, I want to be a Cyberman. Yeah. I, I will slit my kids' throats and I will destroy every last one of you and we're inevitable like it's it's a fantastic performance and it's uh, it is the best thing to happen to the cybermen possibly ever yeah yeah i think i love the idea of a kind of cyber zealot you know who just absolutely 100% believes in the ideal of the cybermen but he kind of believes in it so much that he's kind of rejected because he's so he's so kind of overwhelmingly like for the idea. And you get that brilliant moment at which you think the episode's about to sort of jump the shark where Mary Shelley goes, but oh, you saved a baby and what about your children? And you think, oh, okay, okay. So someone's going to talk him around because he's not really as bad as he is. And he just turns and it was just like, I saved your baby because it's irrelevant. And he just becomes a vile motherfucker. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because the thing is, even when like he he's holding the baby, mm. you know, finally spares its life. Yeah. But like, I don't think at any point in the episode's actually setting you up to think that he's going to do anything but kind of just go, I'm not that fucking interested. Yeah. But it's that bit where he's holding, like, it's a great image, this side man holding the baby going, yeah, you will be like us. But not yet, because I don't, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's that thing of the, 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 the child is sort of more useful as a grown-up. Yes, so let, exactly, let that yeah. let that kid grow up and then turn it into a Cyberman. Like it, yeah. it, it kind of it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, he so, his own children's throat. I know well, that you, know, like, you, you don't hear lines like that in Doctor Who very often. Not unless Eric Seward's writing. <laughs> <laughs> very true. Um, I love his design as well. Um, mm. So I, it's the Cybersmen face, right? Is it the Cybersman face? I don't know if it is, actually. I, I, is it the... Because, hang on, I'm trying to figure it out myself. It's definitely got the Cybersman legs. Hmm. And then it's and got... it's got a kind of Mondas arm. Yeah. Have you yeah, ever seen... I think, I think you're right. I think it is the Cybus... 
but it's just all rusted to fuck. Yeah, and then bits, uh, the, like obviously half of it's missing. Have you ever seen the original design, which incorporated some of the Earthshock kind of kind of chest shoulder unit as well? Oh no, I didn't see uh, that. Yeah, it was in Doctor Who magazine around the time. Um, nice. And it's there's a bit of me that's like, oh, if I knew I could have got it, but also I understand they're working with what they've got and maybe yeah. a step too far. But I, I love that he's this. It implies that he's this ancient Cyberman that's that's been like has gone through all the upgrades and just somehow, whether it was straight away or at some point like two hundred years, a thousand years into his life, just suddenly regained a bit of emotion. But it's just he's just this bitter zealous, as you say. Mm, yeah, it's yeah, it's it's the it is the most interesting because I think you know you are right. The eighty Cybermen are a bit more interesting because they are a bit more kind of emotional but also they are kind of just stock robot baddies Mm. yeah a lot of the time um the plans often just revolve around (laughs) blowing planets up which you know any any fucking villain can do Mm. i think what what ashad's so great is that you know it's very much about kind of this is I'm the fucking future, you know, and 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 this you know conversion is the future, and you know humanity has to kind of progress into this kind of idealized cyber form, even yeah. though I'm this kind of half thing that yeah. isn't the idealized version. It's brilliant. It is Davros, yeah. because you know Davros is a an allegory for Hitler, although is he really mm. or is he an allegory for... Gor- anyway, that's a whole yeah. separate thing. But, you know, there is that same thing of kind of the flawed guy with an idealised mm. idea of what humanity is that he doesn't himself, you know, represent. But it's also... And again, it's not touched on in this episode, but in next week, he's sort of the Cybermen that even the Cybermen are scared of, which Davros doesn't mm. really have in the same way. Like, Davros has always been a bit of a, like, guilty secret of the, of the Daleks. Yeah, he's always kind of just kept in the basement, and he yeah, just, <laughs> just wheel, wheeled out family parties. Exactly, <laughs> like, like we did with my nan for years. <laughs> Mary Shelley meets a Cyberman. Yeah, and it therefore creates Frankenstein. Now, how well do we think? Because obviously, this is something that's going to come up again in the next half. Yeah. Um, how well do we think that's kind of done? Because there's moments where it feels like that kind of Gareth Roberts thing of yeah. just like, oh, don't say fucking Frankenstein. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the the biggest flaw in the kind of this influenced Frankenstein is the whole electricity thing where he charges off the thunderstorm and Mary Shelley or anybody else are just nowhere to be seen when that happens. But I guess you can kind of sell it on the fact that he breaks through in sort of a lightning, you know, when you start to see that that yeah. that, that shadow. But um, I've always kind of hated the Doctor influencing famous works of literary. Um, not, not because it's like, oh, we don't give any credit to the authors or anything like that. I just think as much as Doctor Who does Mary Shelley was destined to happen two, three, seven times, whatever. Um <laughs> I just, I'm just like, oh, can they not do something more interesting together? I think it's so, because, you know, there's all this talk of, um, oh, Doctor Who's too woke in the Chris Chibnall era. But actually, I don't, you know, I think there's an open goal, Mm. you know, for it to talk about Mary Wollstonecraft as this kind of feminist icon, which she'd kind of become. Um, But it, it doesn't do that. And I think that's, 
I mean, there's like I went to a talk somewhere, like probably about five or six years ago, about the history of the life of Mary Shelley, and it was fascinating. And it actually struck me that you could have thrown the Doctor in as part of it because it was quite a tragic life. Um, you could have thrown the Doctor in at any point, and it would have like the scope to kind of revisit that character mm-hmm. rather than just going for the obvious Frankenstein motif. And you know, she she comes out of it like she has some nice moments. She has the moment with Ashad where she's trying to talk him down. But I don't ultimately I don't think it's not like, oh, and this was the one where Doctor Who met Mary Shelley. She could have been any generic sort of historical figure. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Because I was as we'll kind of come to the the eighth Doctor Mary Shelley stuff. Um mm. It it doesn't feel like a kind of celebrity historical. It feels like a kind of Cyberman story with oh look, we've also got Mary Shelley with us. Isn't yeah. that a fun idea? Um, to the point that, you know, I think it does have that thing about how, you know, Frankenstein as a novel, um, you know, it's compassionate to the monster. Yeah. You know, and that compassion, you, you do at least get that when when Mary kind of speaks to a shard. Um, I mean, he then, so at least it does kind of cover that. But, you know, you're right. She did have quite a tragic life. And her marriage to Percy Shelley wasn't this kind of, idealized kind of version that you get here no and which is she... this he's this kind of handsome man yeah because um, he was like quite a bit older than her wasn't he yeah i, I think seem to so. remember she was I like feel... 16 and he was a bit older and he left his wife for her and yeah different times though different times but they do touch on it a little bit of like oh shelly likes to go and write down in the yeah. cottage or whatever and actually like he's a bit of a player and mm. he's probably shagging somebody else, but actually he's in the cellar with the Siberian. But uh, Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I... And this is what I mean about the, the supporting cast. Like, it doesn't need to be these people. Like, it's a bunch of rich fuckers having a bit of a fun time. And I, I don't really care about most of them. I think mm. this, is, this is my big gripe with them. See, yeah. I'm usually the first... I'm usually the first person to be like, oh, I fucking... See if I have to watch a bunch of rich people having a nice time. <laughs> but I think this does have, uh, like the, the the doctor's like, do you want to fucking cut out all of this partying and uh, like tell me what's going on here? Um, and you've got Graham kind of like kind of going, I really need to go and have a piss. <laughs> it's only like, the poor people what? that die, though. Well, yes, this is true. But history, Dylan, you know? Yeah, history. of course. Yeah, but they couldn't, preserve history. they couldn't have had an extra couple of rich mates there who were even more horrible that they just went, and that's it, they're gone. Yeah. That's the thing, horror of Fang Rock fucking kills everyone. <laughs> Terrence Sticks might have been an old Tory, but he's more than willing to kill off posh and poor alike, you know? Terrence Sticks always said that there's nothing people like more than watching rich fuckers get it in the neck. <laughs> So, but where was he when this was being written? Was he dead? He was probably dead. Um, I don't think he was. Was he dead at this point? No, I don't know. Nearly dead. I, they, I suppose the characters do get their comeuppance a little bit. Like, I forget what the characters' names, but the, the woman who's been infatuated with one of the other men. Um, and at the end, she sort of goes, no, you've been an arsehole. The spell's been broken, which at least... And that, to me, is the difference between um, Maxine Alderton writing this and someone like Gareth Roberts. Because in Gareth Roberts' version, he, they, they would have got together and you'd be like, she's, he's been an arsehole to you the whole time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And also, I think Byron would have probably been held up a little bit more. Yeah. As well. Yeah. I mean, I think that there, there is something really interesting. And I think one of the other things I like about this is that it's one of the few times... And, you know, and I don't necessarily think you have to do it every week. Mm. But I do think it, it's kind of surprising that the Jodie Whittaker era didn't lean more into the Doctor kind of experiencing, like, the universe as a woman. Yeah. It's it's a real missed opportunity in that respect, because I would be very surprised if the next era of Doctor Who isn't um, Shooty Gatwa and Russell T. Davis exploring what it's like to be a black time traveller that may go to periods in history where it's yeah. really not okay to be black. But then also, I think, from the interview with Shooty Gatwa, like, I think also it'd be great if, because he kind of wants to sort of look into like African history and you know and not the kind of colonial history the kind of actual African history I think that that would be great as well I also yeah I think there's there's so much scope to it not just the, the bad stuff but yes yeah. <laughs> but you know the, if there's a threat it's there's, there's always oh it's uh, going to be the, yeah it's going to be the white guys I'm quite yeah. right <laughs> um, should we chat a bit about the Siberian the Siberian yes. and its effect because it's it's an interesting concept. I'm not sure if you I'm not sure if you think about it. like it's so it's the collective kind of genius of the Cybermen or something like yeah. that. Like their battle computer, but it doesn't want anything to do with Ashad, which I understand. So yeah. it's it, it's not like it's anti Cybermen, but it's just it's hiding from Ashad to stop him almost being the ultimate Cyberman. Is that is that the thing? Or that it's he's not pure enough to uh yeah, because I, I can't. I, I think it's the idea that he's kind of either too emotional or kind of too hell bent on mm. creating a kind of cyber army that the battle computers like, whoa, 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 this is you. You know, you're not thinking logically here, mate. Yeah, do you want to fucking calm down? And then obviously it's you know it's attracted to the doctor and it's attracted to Percy Shelley because they've got great minds and you know they're, they're thinking yeah. people and they're balanced brains they're not these kind of like slightly unhinged mm. um, sort of villains I, I do think like the end part of the Siberian doesn't work for me as well as like I love the whole setup of it being uh, a haunted house and like the architecture being out of sync and walls appearing and skeletons coming to life and the idea that that's just the Siberian trying to protect itself and Percy trying to be heard I think is is a really interesting idea. I think there could have been more done with it, like I would have loved to have seen the house a bit more sort of Castrovalverish, but done now rather than just, <laughs> there's a lot of people sure. walking in from one side of the frame and then walking back in the other Yes, so, but we'll put that down to this being one of the cheaper episodes because they're saving yeah. all their CG for next week. I think there is still quite a good bit where they kind of walk. It does kind of look as if the Doctor's kind of walked out the shot and then comes back into the shot almost like yeah. immediately. Yeah. But you're right, there's not a lot of that. And it's all quite basic trickery. I'd love some yeah. sort of um, just a bit more kind of visual representation of that that was a bit weirder. Yeah, and I love the idea of the, the cyber battle, battle computer just animating some bones. Of course, it's great. yeah, it you is. Know. And what I will give it again—that's lost on repeat viewing—you are going for the first twenty odd minutes. What? What's going on here? This is really weird. Mm. I don't quite understand 
what's happening. And the idea that it's almost a panic room, like, is, is I think it's a fantastic idea. It's just something protecting itself, so it's going to make this house, yeah, um, but like a bit more of a fortress, which I guess. So one of the issues that really bothered me on first watch was when Ashad appears and they shut the door, a wooden door, she sonics it and they put some chairs and tables in front of it. And first time round, I was like, what the fuck she done to that door? There's no way the sonic can do anything to that. But I guess, like, having knowing the ending, you're a bit more like, okay, so maybe the Siberian informs Yeah, the, the house is somehow. kind of helping the, yeah. Because otherwise, let's go with that. Yeah, let's go because it's. But so obviously, this is Maxine Alderton's first Doctor Who script. Yeah, um, and she'll come back in the next series with Village of the Angels. Yeah, that's another one. That's another oh, four, yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do like? Would you like to see her come back? Yeah, absolutely. I think she, like. As much as I have my problems with this, I would love to see her... I'd love to see her write something that perhaps wasn't so fed into an arc. Um, mm. Although the chances of that slim to none, even if she does come back, I guess. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to know what her vision of Doctor Who is without... Like, apart from a bit of TLC from someone like RTD or Chris Chibnall, mm-hmm. just like a her standalone story. I would absolutely like to see her come back. Because she seems to have a great sort of horror brain. Yeah. Like, and also, like, a really good... I mean, I don't know how much of it is her and how much of it is Chris Chibnall. I'm, I'm guessing a lot. Of, I'm doing that thing that everybody does yeah. where they go, they just assume the writer's done all the good stuff and the showrunner's <laughs> doing all the, you know, the sort of just bones of it. But Yeah, because there's no way the showrunner comes in and makes it better despite their years and years and years of experience of running <laughs> yeah, television no shows and writing it. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, but, you know, she does have a track record of actually doing some interesting stuff yeah. with like classic Doctor Who monsters. Um, yeah. You know, like I think I maintain Village of the Angels is the sequel that Blink should have had rather than oh, yeah. Flesh and Stone, you know. Mm. Because it, it, it does that thing of like, well, what was great about Blink, but make it bigger. Yeah. But don't actually lose sight of what made Blink great, which I think that kind of Flesh and Stone two-parter does. Yeah, Flesh and Stone's a bit more, I'm sure people have said this before, but it's a bit more aliens to alien, whereas this yeah. one feels like, well, well that, that one feels a bit more like Alien 3, the good version. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Where it's like, we're kind of back to basics, but doing something new. Yeah, yeah. But more on that uh, <laughs> next year. Next yeah. year in 2023. Um, anything, yeah, so I get favourite scenes, favourite performances? Um, my, a very basic bitch, but uh, I'm going for Graham as my favourite performance. I just think nice. he's, he's, I think Bradley Walsh is absolutely on fire here. Uh, and then my favourite scene may not be one of the ones that people mainly go to, but I just love the Doctor heading off into the cyber war zone at the end and all the fam going, well, well, no, of course we're going to go with you. I just think it's that thing that really binds them together of like the Doctor's going into absolute peril and there's no question that these guys are ever going to leave her. Except except for in three episodes' time when Ryan and Graham decide to absolutely just leave her. <laughs> just point, point his bicycle in the direction of Patagonia. <laughs> It's not my it's not my favorite scene, but it is very good. But what I like about that as a resolution 
is that Doctor Who's a time travel show. Mm. So why can't you give the villain what they want yeah. and then jump ahead? <laughs> yeah. So you save all the people in the room with you, then you jump ahead and then fix the problem. It's quite an interesting concept. It's also this thing of when I first watched it, I was like, did the Doctor cause that war? But actually he says the war's already happened. He's just yeah. trying to finish it off. But she can just go and, as you say, nip him and head him off at the pass, as it were. Exactly. But I'm glad you brought it up, though, because um, that brings me to my emergency question. Oh, uh, this is exciting. So as we're watching it and uh, the Doctor says, look, you know, you don't have to come with me. A cyber war zone is no place for human beings. Um... <laughs> I can drop you back in 2020. Now, Dylan Reese, <laughs> what would you prefer to live through? <laughs> a cyber war or 2020? A cyber war or the COVID-19 pandemic. What would you... Oh, dear God. Um, I mean, Doctor Who 2 Hot for TV was born out of... Uh, it was started just before the pandemic, and I feel like, as the fans say, it was our glory years. Um, our imperial <laughs> phase. Um I No, I think I'd go and uh, fight some Cybermen and probably die within about the first four seconds of the episode. Yeah. What about you? I think, I think I would as well. It's a bit more exciting than... I mean, you know, I, got, I watched a lot of stuff that I'd been meaning to watch for years. Yeah. You know, I watched all of High Matt. That was good. Oh, yeah, you know, I guess, Really yeah. enjoyed that. But I think I did have that feeling of, you know, there was all that kind of good people going out banging pots together for yeah. nurses and... <laughs> You know, not, what was I doing? I was just sitting in my house. You know, I wasn't doing anything to help. So no. I think, yeah, maybe I would Maybe I would just go off to the cyber wars and try and do something. And then, you... yeah, probably die in the first two minutes. Oh, so you're lasting longer than me. <laughs> Great. It was, so, we didn't get your favourite performances. No, and so my, my favourite scene is, um, well, there's quite a few, but I think I really like the dance scene. Yeah. Because it's the Doctor and the companions trying to, Figure out mm. what's happening while these rich arseholes are just partying. <laughs> but then also you've got that great thing of kind of Byron flirting with the Doctor mm. and the Doctor just having none of it. And you wouldn't get that with David Tennant. And you, <laughs> you, get, that, you get that slightly lightly with Matt Smith, but in that kind of schoolboy, ooh, I'm a bit shy. Ooh. Oh, Whereas yeah. Jodie Whittaker is just proper like, listen, mate. Yeah. You shagged your sister. I've got no interest. <laughs> David Tennant would be shagging him and his sister together. <laughs> Coming next November to uh, BBC One and Disney Plus. Uh, and my favourite performance, and I hope I'm getting his name right, is Stefan Bernerjik as Fletcher. I think uh, he's great. I think he's a great, like, sort of very kind of low key Doctor Who guest actor. You yeah, know, I'll give doesn't hold a look to yeah. to quote William Hartnell. <laughs> um, the only reason I say the performance probably isn't Ashad is because he'll, for me, he would get my performance of the week next week. He is very good, and I think he yeah. would, you know, he'd definitely be there as well, because I think, like I say, it's the most interesting thing they do with the Cybermen, and I think Patrick O'Kane, that's the actor's name, isn't it? Yeah. I I think he's great, um, and I think it's kind of, I, I get what people are saying in that, you know, he kind of comes back for Power of the Doctor, and it's a bit, it's kind of just more like a kind of victory lap, kind of like, yeah, oh, he's back. It absolutely is, like, there's no point, he, there's no point in him being there, but I'm very glad that he is. Yeah, uh, but it'd be good to see him again, and I think um, yeah, yeah. I just it's, it's just great to have something interesting done with the Cybermen again, really. Absolutely. Um, one one thing I did want to point out, and I don't know whether I'm seeing things that aren't there, is there a hint 
of Lasmin there when all this talk of that, oh, well, you know, Chibnall only put it in because, you know, the fans wanted it. And it's like, well, I, that might be true, but I feel as if, because re-watching it over the course yeah. of the podcast, Ben and I have been like, yeah, but you can see that as a kind of indicator. Yeah. And that as a kind of... And this, you're right, the scene where she talks to... It's not Mary Shelley, is it? It's her sister about Byron. Yeah, about yeah, and it's about someone being enigmatic, essentially. Yeah. And like somebody that's kind of slightly out of reach. And it happens again. I'd, by the time you get to... Is it Resolution? Whatever the, mm, the Dalek episode Revolution. is. Revolution. Revolution. It's a hundred percent there by that episode with the conversation that um, yeah. Yaz has with Jack, but I think it's here, and I think there are bits of it in this season. And also, people say, "Oh, it's a bad thing." Like this, they th- he threw it in just because the fans wanted it. I mean, Moffat threw in the fucking Mondasian Cybermen because Peter Capaldi wanted it, and he's a fanboy. Like, yeah. well, as I, 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 what, I can't remember what I wrote in. I think it was in a. What cultural article or something um, about... Oh, that was it. It was the Zygons mm. and how Stephen Moffat just threw the Zygons in to Day of the Doctor because he thought that would get David Tennant back. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if that's true, but I mean, it's a pretty good... Because they're his favourite monster. But then actually, it turns out David Tennant will come back at the Whenever, drop of <laughs> Whenever you want. But, well, there we go. Yeah. Uh, David Tennant is ready and willing to play Doctor Who. Please call... Oh, eight, four, five, five. One other person I wanted to shout out about this episode as well mm-hmm. is uh, Sagan Akinola's music. Um, I think yeah. he does a really good job. I, I, I think I prefer Sagan Akinola's version of like his Doctor Who music to Murray Gold's. However, I miss the big bombastic themes. So, like, kind of the episode to episode music. I think is much better and subtler and I really like. But every now and then I just want that dun 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 or something like that. Just yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. like that's the that's the thing it's it's slightly missing for me, but and I think in this episode he does a really good job of of, of scoring it. He's a great he's a great composer for um mm. like atmosphere and yes. he like he re- I think he's definitely the kind of composer that that kind of goes like the music's there to kind of back up the story. It's not there to yeah. kind of like Murray Gold music is is very a lot of the time, and you know I love Murray Gold's music. Yeah. I'm, I'm like you, you know I do miss those themes, mm. um, but it is a lot of the time taking you by the hand, yeah, through a story a lot a lot of the time. Um, but yeah, well, great. So uh, that was Mary Shelley, the Doctor, and a Cyberman. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll be back with the Doctor, Mary Shelley, <laughs> and a Cyberman. <laughs> Um, as we tackle The Silver Turk by Mark Platt. So we're back um, and we're pairing this up with uh, The Silver Turk, which is a big finish from the kind of weird middle section of the kind of <laughs> Paul McGann era. But we'll get to yeah. that in a bit more detail shortly. Um, but this isn't actually the first time the big finish put the Doctor and Mary Shelley together. So Big no. Finish do their own haunting of Villa Diodate, um yeah. in The Company of Friends. That's that's the name of it. It's an interesting one where it's like four different, like sort of 30-minute episodes. And it felt... I can't remember... I'm just going to bring up what year it was because it felt like there was a period where 
obviously Sheridan Smith was obviously becoming incredibly famous and was yeah. therefore not able to do as much big finish. So they kind of wrote her out, but then they kind of wrote her back in. And is this? I think this is before Sheridan Smith because obviously this was they were trialing out other companions. So you had Fritz, sorry Fitz, from the books. Yeah. In an audio, you had Izzy from the comic strips in an audio, and you yeah. had Bernie Summerfield. Yeah, um, um, which is which is a cracking lineup. You're right. This is after Sheridan Smith, where they don't really know what to do. It's it's the, it's this weird thing with the uh, Eighth Doctor because you get the Charlie run, they go to the Divergent universe, then the Doctor comes back from the Divergent universe. Sort of running tangentially, you've got the Doctor and Charlie and Kerry's in the main range, sort of every few months. And then you've also got, from 2006 onwards, the Eighth Doctor and Sheridan Smith. I think they did eventually phase that out. And then I think the Silver Turk was the Eighth Doctor kind of coming back into the monthly range. Yeah. But the Company of Friends was one of those monthly range releases. Yes, it uh, was. Yeah. And obviously, one of those is that the last one is Mary's story, which is essentially it's the same story. They're all at Villa Diodati. There's a, a terrifying creature outside, but it's the doctor who's been mortally wounded yeah. in a temporal storm. Um, and then she helps this monstrous version of the eighth doctor to send a distress signal, which brings an earlier eighth doctor who then. Picks up Mary Shelley and they go off on adventures together. It's yeah. all very. I listened to it this morning on. It's all right, but it's a very different take. But it's in, it's it's worth kind of going back and listening to uh, Mary's story for a kind of completely different version. And obviously, at the time when this came, when Haunting of the Diodati came out, you get the same old boring assholes <laughs> who are like, "Oh, but this erases big finish." It doesn't. I've always seen it as like this sort of multiverse thing of just like, uh, okay, well. The Doctor can meet Mary Shelley three times or twice, whatever. The Doctor can also um, have five different versions of Mel leaving and three <laughs> different versions of Atlantis. It's just like wh- wherever the timeline takes you and puts you on that on that path. Well, yeah, because he's a time traveller. Well, they're mm. a time traveller. And, uh, you know, the more you mess around, obviously yeah. the more different divergent timelines you're going to create. Exactly. Hazard of the job. Anyway, so... Uh, we are talking about the Silver Turk, um, which was released on the fifteenth of October two thousand and eleven. Um, it was written by Mark Platt. It was directed uh, by Barnaby Edwards, and it stars uh, Paul McGann, the Eighth Doctor. This is the, this is the main reason I kind of bring up, I bring in Big Finish, is just because it's an excuse to do some Eighth Doctor. Yeah, because I, I feel like enough. because of the format, we kind of miss. A lot yeah. again, and I feel it's unfair. I feel it's unfair. I feel it's unfair. It, it is unfair, but you don't always pick the best of again story. No, we don't, do we? We don't. We should really pick but, a good one soon. But but then it's also the thing of everybody's talked about Chimes of Midnight and Dark Eyes and what have you. Like, I know, right? who's talking about the Silver Turk and the Witch in the Well or whatever? Whatever you choose to do next, no, nobody, <laughs> and maybe for good reason. Maybe, maybe. Um, so yes, so this was. Um, just, just sort of uh, after the um, sort of BBC. Well, it was kind of like a BBC Radio Seven Big Finish kind of co-production of yeah. kind of the Eighth Doctor and Lucy Miller adventures, which had kind of come to a pretty brutal conclusion a few months earlier. 
Oh yeah, it's it's it it, it starts of a jovial sort of like a fantastic time lord and companion duo to like the the starkest barest most depressing finale yeah uh, with multiple deaths yeah even that series that four series is it is it not the one that starts with that kind of funny like comic like what would the apprentice be like if the doctor was auditioning for companions yeah that's your season opener and then it ends with the doctor's grand i mean spoiler alert the doctor's grandson's great-grandson's dead Lucy's yeah. dead. Susan's devastated. Yeah. The Doctor's suicidal. Exactly. It's 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 a great run of stories, and it's the sort of thing that you kind of want. That's kind of what you want your spin-off media to do, because the new series, like this, the TV series, is never really going to touch on that. No, until Stephen Moffat just starts killing companions left, right, and center. Yeah, but, but they all survive. They, they all, all survive in a way. They, they all go off into space to be lesbians. <laughs> Pretty much, right? Yeah, I mean, the clues were there in the episode of Coupling with the lesbian spank inferno as to <laughs> Anyway, um, so that's the stats and some context. Uh, let's have some fun. It's time to play. Dexys, where did it come game? So, what we're going to do for this, because obviously we don't have, the silver tuck isn't included in the Big Dot 2 poll. I suggested to Derek that what we should do is the Brain of Morbius because it's ages since we've done it. So, you know, we won't know that we won't remember. Um, And then also because it's Mary Shelley Frankenstein adjacent. Okay. Because it's basically a sci fi. Yeah. Well, a sci fi take of a classic sci fi story. (laughs) um, So, yeah, so we're going to do that. So, so it'll be me to go first this round. Um, people really... I like the Brain of Morbius. A lot of people like the Brain of Morbius. Yeah, they do, yeah. But I feel it's a top 40, not a top 20. Interesting. I'm going to go 34. Interesting. I'm going to go 27. Ooh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think... I th- yeah, I just... I feel like it's... It's from that era that everybody loves. It was an early VHS release. Like, if you are a Doctor Who fan that is over the age of 30, you fucking love it, don't you? That's what, that's what you like, isn't it? <laughs> that's what you like. You like the brain of Morbius. Well, I, I like the timeless children. <laughs> he's cheeky, he's dicky, he's wicky and squeaky. He once got a letter from Colin Baker. Well, I hate to break it to you, Dylan, but I was closest because uh, the Brain of Morbius is at number forty-three. Ah, well, perhaps Doctor uh, Who fans don't love it that much. <laughs> it's between Pandorica and the Big Bang. It's interesting. Yeah. At forty-two, and the Dalek Master Plan at forty-four. Um, so, do you want to know the answer to the question that was posed the first half of the episode, Go which on. was? In which film does Hideo Amoto <laughs> play Doctor Who and Hideo Kirino play Doctor Who's assistant? It is the film King Kong Escapes. What the shit? The electronic monster Mechanicong boldly challenges the ruler of the South Seas, King Kong. It's basically King Kong versus Mecha King Kong. Right. And um, what, uh, what's Doctor Who got to do with this? Uh, <laughs> well, Doctor, Doctor Who... Doctor Who is one of the, is the scientist who helps ah. them. That is his actual name. I've, I've got it on Letterboxd. Hideo okay. Amoto plays Doctor Who. 
coming soon to Too Hot for TV. <laughs> I'd be up for that. <laughs> there we go. You're in. Ready for a game of Degsy's Ding Dong Ping Pong? Absolutely. Uh, so this is anybody who has an acting credit in Torchwood series one and two. Oh fucking hell! Both series. So that's the main cast. So series one and two, or one or two. One and two. But so they have to have been in both. Yeah. They... Fuck <laughs> us. Listeners oh. can't see Dylan's face right now. Oh but... shit! I th- I've got two names. The one of them is John Barrowman. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, it's you to start. Uh, Kai Owen. That's his name. Neoko Mori? Yeah. Uh, Eve Miles. Uh, So this is a a risk. Neris Hughes. Neris Hughes? Because she plays Gwen's mum. But now... And because I know Derek likes Neris Hughes, <laughs> I have uh, just taken the liberty of guessing that she's in. But maybe it's Torchwood Series 2 and 4 she's in. Because I know she's... Let's see. Well, apparently she's only in one episode of Torchwood. Well, you fucked it. I fucked it. <laughs> I fucked it. But is he called Tom Price? Oh, yeah, yeah. Tom Price is the actor. It still shocks me that that guy got so much work out of that one. I know, right? And still gets a lot of work. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's it's wild. Who's buying it, though, Dylan? Who's buying it? Well, I mean, having done a Torchwood recently for uh, Too Hot for TV, which will be out in December, um, I'm quite tempted to jump into some of those Torchwood audios. And because the one I listened to was not only great, but my guest, which was Luke from um, Lost on Gallifrey, listed a load of other ones that you were like they're fucking brilliant so so um <laughs> there's no fucking listener correspondence for this one what because who remembers the silver attack <laughs> certainly not me um so i guess we'll shall we do that then shall we do the too hot for tv style you know do you remember you know did you listen to this at the time you know kind of thing so, so did, did I you, listen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are we going to do a? Uh, are we going to do Ooh, yes theme drinks first of all? You go first. So uh, I've got another brew dog because apparently, even though they treat their staff badly, I don't care. Um, and it's a West Coast IPA called Puppet Master, which I feel is quite kind of on the nose for the Silver Turk and its animated cadavers and dolls and things. It also describes uh, James Watt of Brew Dogs management <laughs> style as well. I've got uh, a can of Love and Hate uh, ah. New England IPA because those are two things that a Cyberman can never feel. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're all going to be slightly sozzled after these. I'm sure both of those are yeah, about six, qu- 7%. <laughs> yeah, this is 7.2. The last one was... Uh, what was the last one? Only five and a half. This is 6.5. Well, let's see how we get on. Well, I've got a backup can here as well. Oh, me just, too. Just in case I run out and I still need to drink, which is 5.9. So, yeah, we'll be fucked. Uh, mine's only 4.4 and it's a two times <laughs> dream. Nothing related to uh, no. this. Um, so, yeah. 
But yeah, so what's your... Actually, well, let's do... Since we don't have any listener correspondence, let's do a little bit more kind of con- contextualising this. So what... Um, obviously, this is Mark Platt writing yeah. um, the Silver Turk. Like, what's your kind of... Because you're, you're the Doctor Expanded Media guy, right? What's your kind of feelings on Mark Platt and his work? Mark Platt is an interesting one because I feel like around the sort of New Adventures era... Um, sort of the post seventh doctor, the post seventh doctor TV era. He was heralded as this champion of like, this is a guy who really gets Doctor Who, um, and he has written some pretty good stuff that I would describe as the best version of fan wank you're probably going to get, um, like stuff that really appeals to. It's posh fan wank. It's posh fan wank, exactly. You know, it's it's doing it with the other hand, um, with a glove on. I'm so tempted to call this episode posh fan wank. You should absolutely do it. <laughs> um, but, I mean, if you look at his work, so he did Ghostlight, obviously. Everybody loves Ghostlight. It, you know, it doesn't quite necessarily hold together on first viewing. He did Downtime, which I'm a big fan of, but, again, it's quite fan wanky. Cat's Cradle, Time's Crucible, Lung Barrow. Um and a lot of short trips and stuff like that. When it comes to Doctor Who at Big Finish, his earliest contribution is Lugaroo, um, or however you say it. I've always called it Lugaroo. I think it's Lugaroo. Or is it Lugaroo? Because it's about werewolves, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe it's Lupus Garou? Anyway. Um, uh, Which is I always remember as being a bit of a belter, and then he did Spare Parts. But as I look down his list of kind of... His contributions. I am left a little bit like none of them I would describe as shockingly bad, but they're quite. I would say just very kind of run of the mill big finish. So you've got things like Valhalla and Time Reef, um, the Cradle of the Snake, the Butcher of Brisbane, uh, Eldrad Must Die, Planet of the Rani. Um, I'm just looking through Night of the Storm Crow, which I remember quite liking. Thin Ice. Thin Ice is the one that was kind of season 28 or 27 or whatever it was. Season 27, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, do you know what? He always delivers a bit of solid Doctor Who that's a little bit different. And sometimes it's heavy on the um, fan wank. Sometimes it's not. I don't think I would... Descri- I don't know whether anybody would describe him as their favourite Doctor Who writer. I, I, lo- I really like Ghostlight, as you say. Mm-hmm. Everybody likes Ghostlight. Um, but I remember trying to read... Well, I, I did finally make it through it all, but I remember reading Cat's Cradle and just finding it interminable. Yeah. Um, because it's... It, it's so much full of just very like opaque sort of time lord mythology that he's kind yeah. of just created um and it's this kind of mad info dump you know yeah. wh- which is kind of wrapped around a decent enough concept which is what would happen if the TARDIS fucking exploded yeah and it's like well it would become its own planet and you know th- how that would all kind of work out but on top of that it's that there's like another TARDIS from like the Doctor's prehistory yeah that's there and there's uh, so, and then Long Barrow's the same. It's all this kind of mythology stuff. And whereas Spare Parts, again, like Ghostlight, everybody found it loves Spare Parts. But it is, it is relying on that fan wank. It's like there's no doubt that he can write. 
but you can see you you can see why Russell T Davis would ask um, Rob Shearman to do Dalek, but not ask Mark Platt to do spare parts. You know? Yeah, I I get that because I think I, I do think he's a better scriptwriter than he is a novelist. Yeah, I don't know if that's controversial. No, I don't. Uh, I don't think it is at all. But uh, yeah, I don't think he. I, yeah, I couldn't see Mark Platt writing for two thousands Doctor Who at that point. Yeah, you know, you know, you know when people say, "What's the best way to become a Doctor Who writer?" and it's to write other things. Yes, I could not tell you if Mark Platt has ever written anything other. Than Shall we Doctor find Who. out? Let's absolutely do that. <laughs> I don't know why I said that as if I'm about to turn over to. And here he is. He's been listening <laughs> to the whole thing. His Wikipedia, the only other credit I can find, is called Space 1889, the Siege of Alison. Space 1889, is it? Yeah, which sounds like a well, I've got his, who writes So I've got his uh, IMDb. Fuck, you know. I've got his IMDb up, and yeah, yeah. it's basically Doctor Who. 1989, three episodes. Downtime, 1995. Doctor Who, The Monthly Adventures, which is obviously Big Finish. Mm. Uh, Doctor Who, Spare Parts. Uh, Doctor Who, Idea, Uncredited, which I presume is uh, The Rise of the Sad Men, Age of Steel. Thin Ice. Uh, Some Eighth Doctor Adventures. What ones did he write? Or is that maybe this one, actually? No, he's he's written a few... um... He wrote an earthly child. And oh which, yes, um, I remember that. Did he also um, write the Christmas one? No, he wrote the Skull of Sobek. And oh yes, he did Relative Dimensions. Yeah, that's quite good. I remember quite yeah. enjoying that actually. To be fair, that was quite a good one. But yeah, there's there's nothing other than Doctor Who. Yeah, uh, so, in here. Oh no, wait, no, sorry. He wrote uh, an episode of Dan Dare. Oh, of course. Right. <laughs> Which is presumably also a big finish. Yeah. Uh, yes. And he's I mean, listed as the creator of Kate Stewart, apparently. But Well, I mean, he is. He's not cre- he's not credited as that on any official thing, but he did create the character. Um which I can't kind of goes back to the last thing of uh Chris Chibnall. <laughs> Chris Chibnall seems to pluck things off Mark Platt. And uh, has Chris Chibnall ever seen Downtime? And has he ever heard The Silver Turk? Um, because he seems to have plucked two ideas from somebody's work. Yes, but then Russell T and Moffat, like, you know, it's the more you listen to podcasts like yours and podcasts like We're All Stories in the End, you yeah. kind of go... They were all fucking reading and listening to this stuff when yeah. it wasn't on the telly. And it's just, and it, been it's a... just in there. You're not yeah. doing it on purpose. Or something like Kate Stewart. My assumption with Kate Stewart has always been that everybody just assumed the Brigadier had always had a daughter called Kate Stewart because she was in downtime. And it must have been mentioned in the Three Doctors novelization or <laughs> on TV at some point. Yes. Yeah, and true. then they made the Power of Three. And at some point, presumably, Mark Platt went, but I... I invented that character, but also in a kind of unofficial capacity in a semi-licensed spin-off. So I don't think there's any point where there there's like cause for like a legal ramblings. I think they just have to have mm. a gentleman's handshake of like, uh, well, yes. this is awkward. But uh... <laughs> uh, so then one other little bit of contextualizing, I suppose, before we get into the 
the meat and potatoes of it is um, what's your kind of, I mean, I think maybe we covered this a little bit when we had you on last time, but what's your kind of history with the the Eighth Doctor range? I mean, I was like, the Eighth Doctor range is one of several periods of Doctor Who that I um, that I would consider my my period, probably the Seventh Doctor, the early new series, or all the new series, really, because we've all been living through it. But um, but certainly... living through it is a bit of fucking <laughs> pandemic. A pandemic. <laughs> But the comics, some of the books, and all of the audios, I was a huge consumer of. I was main veining them. Like I love that the the run of Charlie Pollard. I love the run of Sheridan Smith, and it's only recently that I've actually fallen off the Eighth Doctor range. Like I was, it, it, even if I didn't keep up with anything else, it's only in the last sort of. 18 months, two years that I've really gone. Actually, there's too much Eighth Doctor for me to consume. However, these stories, I remember hearing the Til- the Silver Turk not long after it came out, I would say within six months, but maybe not straight away. Hmm. And I remember really enjoying it. We'll come to how I feel about it now shortly. <laughs> but it's followed by The Witch in the Well and then The Army of Death. The Army of Death was the first big finish I ever turned off and never complete, completed listening wow. to. Every main range story before that, I have heard all the way through, and probably about 50 afterwards, but that one, I was just like, do you know what? Life's too short. <laughs> so it's interesting you say that, because I think we we have a very similar relationship then with the 8th Doctor range. Um, because I was... Because I mean, it was like... It was my Doctor Who. Because I was like, oh, well, I can't get it on the telly, but, you know, Paul McGann's the Doctor every month for, you know, six months of the year or whatever it was. Then the kind of Lucy Miller audios came out, and it was great because it was like, you had Doctor Who on the telly, and then in the kind of interim period you had, like, new adventures that were kind of pacier, like the TV series, and um, you had Sheridan Smith and Paul McGann, they were great together, and then that kind of comes to an end and then you get the Silver Turk. And it felt, I remember at the time it felt to me like a retrograde step because you'd gone from like four series of kind of 50 minute adventures with the occasional two-parters to being a kind of old school four-part Doctor Who serial. And it kind of, I just, I kind of, I do remember listening to the Silver Turk but then I say that, and I, when I listen to it again for this, I was like, I don't remember any of this. Yeah. Um, it, and I it, think it, that was the first time I kind of was like, oh, I don't know if this new Doctor range is for me. And then obviously Dark Eyes came out, and I was just like hooked back in again. Yeah, exactly. And you get that whole Dark Eyes run, and then Doom Coalition. I think it was towards the tail end of Doom Coalition I really started just losing the will to live a little bit. Well, because Doom Coalition has that thing where Big Finish go, let's fucking tie it all into the new series. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that we've just kind of, since then, it's just been kind of, they've just been heaping it on top of it. I remember certainly the Charlotte, Charlotte Pollard range, the Lucy Miller range, and Dark Eyes feeling like just as exciting as televised Doctor Who. Like even and only one of them was out when there was no televised Doctor Who. But just been like, I'm gonna get the new Dark Eyes box set. There's a new Lucy Miller and Eighth Doctor series. This is, you know, 
a classic run of Doctor Who. And you look at the because I think we've we've talked. I think no, actually no. I think I've heard you talk about this before on Too Hot for TV, where it's like because it was on the radio. Mm. Those Lucy Miller audios had like pretty strong casting that would be up there with the TV show yeah. as well. Like you had like Nigel Havers and Timothy West and Shan Phillips and like you had like great like kind of like old school actors. Yeah, I doing feel Doctor Who scripts. I feel like much like Death Comes to Time because it had that official BBC stamp on. They were. I'm not sure they had any bigger budgets, but I think people were just like, "Well, yeah, of course I do radio and I'll do Doctor Who and sci-fi," in a way that I think up until probably the last, probably since the 50th anniversary. Um, this has changed, but before the 50th anniversary, I think a lot of actors looked at Big Finish like it was a bunch of weirdos in a bedroom recording some fan audios and paying their favourite doctors to be there, which is not true, but I can see why people might see see that. Now nah, Kate Winslet's in. I was going to say it was good enough for Kate Winslet. <laughs> well, should we talk about the Silver Turk then? So for uh, listeners who haven't listened to it, which is presumably all of you, because none of you have um <laughs> It is essentially it's the first trip in the TARDIS for the Eighth Doctor and Mary Shelley after he, after she helps him heal his future self. Yeah. There uh, you go. So they go to Vienna, um, and it's supposed to be basically they're just going across the water. Yeah. Uh, but oh no! In true Doctor Who style, uh, he's overshot by fifty years, um, and they discover some strange goings on. Uh, with an, a chess playing automaton that is obviously going to turn out to be a Cyberman. Because, yeah. first of all, it's on the CD cover. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in in true sort of VHS style, really spoils like any yeah. enjoyment of episode <laughs> yeah, I one. I mean, I want to start right from the very start here. What the fuck's up with that theme tune? <laughs> oh, ben, ben sent me a message. What the hell is up with that theme tune? Yeah, and and that was the first thing where I went. Maybe I didn't listen to this at the time because <laughs> yeah, I'd forgotten I remember, about it. I would remember a Doctor Who theme tune that is essentially the the fourth season of David Tennant, uh, the original series theme tune, like the kind of Delia Derbyshire version, the TV movie version, put into a blender, and then somebody's kicked that blender down a flight of stone steps. <laughs> horrible when it starts i'm like oh a new theme tune and within about four seconds i'm like no stop stop what are you doing and that it's just it's i think it might go down in history as the biggest misunderstanding of the doctor who theme tune of all time and if that wasn't an assault on the senses enough it then starts with some nursery rhymes so it just feels like for the first like minute it's just like a real yeah. assault on your ears. You're like, oh, what the fuck is this? So I'm already, I'm already uncomfortable. Yes, yes. Because uh, the thing is, 
So I, there was part of me that was just, oh, fucking brilliant. You know, we've chosen a big finish. I can prep for this, like, while I'm walking the dog, right? <laughs> yeah. Obviously, I'm, sl- I'm standing there listening to this god-awful theme tune. Then the nursery rhymes. Then I've got to pick up dog shit. And I can't tell you, I can't tell you which of those three things was the most enjoyable. But there was a point where you were just cramming the dog shit in your ears. like. <laughs> I think that this has a great fourth episode with three episodes of plodding shit before it. I, I think there's a cracking idea in here and it's a cracking 50-minute episode, you know. Um, and, and this is it, and that's why it feels so strange that they go back to that kind of. And I guess it's because McGann's kind of subsumed back into the monthly range for a little yeah. bit. It's the Eighth Doctor jumping back in for the second time into the main range. I think it suddenly feels just completely unremarkable, which I never want my Eighth Doctor to no. feel like. And I think because I, I so loved that, and I think it's is quite incredible actually that. I, I could love that eighth doctor era so much while you've got like fucking David Tennant mm. and Matt Smith as the doctor, like going alongside it. Yeah. But I really did. Like it really felt like but, but my this, Doctor Who. And I believe this is set super early in the eighth doctors. It is. So it's set before he even meets Charlie, isn't it? Because it's, mm. it's tied into Terra Firma, by, which is yeah. a great eighth doctor. Brilliant oh, story. <laughs> Which uh, we should has, do that at some point. Absolutely, absolutely. I was thinking that as as I was going through this and sort of reading <laughs> up. But Gemma and Samson are these two yes. companions that do they appear in that? They do appear in it, right? So they appear in Terra Firma. So the first time yeah. you ever meet them is Terra Firma, and they're kind of companions the Doctor's left behind. And Davros has fucked them up, right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, um, so you never actually have an era with them, no. No, but they're kind of part of the mythology of the Eighth Doctor on Big Finish. Yeah. Because it was just, I think it was just Joe Lidster kind of going, as I think, you know, Stephen Moffat did with the Time War, where you go, well, we did have quite a long period between the TV movie and McGann yeah. actually coming to Big Finish. So what if he did have, Yeah, you know, other companions, other adventures? And that's so- the kind of twist in Terra Firma. Mm. Sorry, spoiler alert, but it's... <laughs> it's- <laughs> So I think I think you kind of go. The Doctor leaves Grace in San Francisco, nineteen ninety nine, or two thousand when he leaves her. Um, yes. yeah. uh, picks up Gemma and Samson somewhere along the way. Has an adventure. Always means to go back with them, but inadvertently um, leaves them to a life of hell under Davros. And then yes. pops off with Mary Shelley for three stories. Now. I had always wondered why they didn't do any more, but apparently there's a prologue on the final story that just goes up, like after the credits, just goes, and she went back home. And Fuck off. Yeah. I don't know. I, I I feel like... But then, no, they wouldn't have just added that retrospectively. That was probably always the... They weren't going to just pooch it. Maybe they did pooch it. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, like, like, this isn't working after what we've, like, we've pushed the Eighth Doctor here in this kind of bold new direction, and then we're kind of bringing it back to this kind of. Yeah. Oh, here's Paul McGann in classic Doctor Who. Yeah. And people are like, we've had four years of him doing, like, really kind of pacey, new adventure style stories. And then you just throw him back to this shit. He's I, yeah. back to. Was, was Nick Briggs in charge at this point? Who's I think he there? was, because he's interviewed on the. Uh, sort of behind the scenes thing at the end of the disc. Right. Um, because I'm wondering whether there is that weird 
couple of years when Gary Russell's left and Nick Briggs has taken over and it's all just a bit of a mess because some of it's Gary stuff, some of it's Nick stuff, but the new... that Whatever the new agenda for Big Finish is isn't quite working. So I'm wondering whether it's like, we'll put him back in the main range. Oh, actually, no, the Eighth Doctor needs to be more special than that. And actually, maybe the Eighth Doctor's got a bit more of a following now because he's been on radio. Mm. This is also around the time that Jason Hay Gallery revealed recently in uh, a Sirens of Audio release um, podcast that Big Finish almost folded because people just weren't buying or listening. Oh, that's interesting. And it's only in a couple of years' time, the 50th anniversary, that uh, it's literally the night of the Doctor and all of a sudden the main show looking back on itself that all of a sudden gives Big Finish this boost and where it all suddenly feels like a whole thing again, which had very much been separate. But then, of course, because Night of the Doctor canonises half of the, all of big, <laughs> half of the <laughs> big Finish companions. Yeah. Anyone's up to... Not Mary Shelley, though. He doesn't mention Mary, does no, he? No, he doesn't. But then Mary's story in the Company of Friends, um, the Doctor like references Destry in Compassion. Yeah. And, and stuff like that. So there was clearly a kind of like, I think there was all these kind of attempts to kind of go, should we try and tie the whole Eighth Doctor timeline together? Um, and out of that, yeah. you get this. I, yeah. yeah. I realise we're talking more about the era as a whole, but perhaps yes, that's we because, are. I mean, I often find this on Too Hot for TV, that the situations surrounding something are more interesting than perhaps the four yeah. episodes you're looking at. And I think as a kind of, as a, as a kind of artifact of the Eighth Doctor era as it was at that time, I do I do think it... I don't know how true this is, and, you know, if anybody knows any better, do tell me, but it does feel like a kind of moment where they didn't know what to do next. No. Um, it, it really... It is just like, as you say, it's the Eighth Doctor back in classic Doctor Who. It doesn't quite work. I think the most successful element is probably the Cyberman and this... Yeah. You know, you've got this whole thing of sort of animation of weird cadavers and dolls and all these elements of freak shows that you kind of tie in. I love the idea of a Cyberman with no legs eating cabbage soup and wearing a turban and being used yeah. in a, and playing the piano. It's such a creepy idea and it makes this harrowing sound. And yeah, yeah. And then obviously eventually you find out it's a Cyberman and a 10th Planet Cyberman because I think this is the first time we've seen the 10th Planet Cyberman. Oh no, spare parts, of course. But, but yeah, but that's kind of I guess. Hmm. But it's the first; it's the first time they come back in a, I guess, because obviously Spare Parts is a prequel, so of course it's yeah. the Mundasian Sidemen. But yeah, it's the first time that that they kind of, I think, that somebody goes, they are actually probably the more terrifying version. Yeah, and it's, so these two Cybermen are sort of they're a scouting mission or something like that from Mondas. Yeah. Um, who have crashed here, got separated. One of them ends up in sort of a freak show. It's not a freak show. Is it a freak show? A circus? Well, it's kind of like a circus. Well, it's the exposition, isn't it? So it's kind mm. of, I think, one of those kind of like shows. Oh, of, of kind course, of like yeah. Technology. Technology and stuff like that. And and it's a great idea. It's a really great yeah. idea. And it's kind of, it kind of becomes, certainly in the first couple of episodes, it, it's, it is a bit like the Elephant Man, but with a Cyberman. Mm. Which and is a great a, concept. <laughs> it is. And there's that fantas- fantastic description of this Cyberman that it, it stinks of antiseptic and cabbage soup, which, of course, I've never thought what a Cyberman would smell like. And obviously, perhaps Ashad <laughs> wouldn't. But this Cyberman is like, 
it's being fed because it's organic. I guess it's organic elements are still more functioning because it's that early model of Cybermen. And there is a certain amount of emotion to these Cybermen, which I'm, I think we'll probably get on to shortly. Um, yes, there is. Um, but I, I think um, there is a sense of... Because I listened to Spare Parts again quite recently for this when we did um, World Enough in Time. And listening to the Silver Trip now... There's a real feeling of kind of it's a Mark Platt's greatest hits. Yeah, you know, there's the the kind of the puppets, the nursery rhymes. It all feels a bit ghostlike. Yeah, the know. Victoriana of it. Yeah, and the and he he literally the plot is the villain wants to replace the <laughs> the German countess with yeah. a wooden Cyberman version uh, yeah. of the countess. Which was the plot of Ghostly. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, yeah. But it's it's a greatest hit that I would argue has been re-recorded with a different backing band and doesn't quite have the same, <laughs> the, the, the same impact. You know when uh, Axl Rose kicked everybody out of Guns N' Roses, whenever he got a new member in, he'd make the, all the band members go back into the studio and re-record their first three albums together to make sure they got them right. That's what this feels like. It's never going to sound the same. <laughs> We're going on a Guns N' Roses tangent now. I have no idea why, but... Uh... What what I do love is that the Cybermen have names, which goes back to that 10th Planet novelization, and maybe even maybe even the Doctor and the Cybermen novelization as well, where it's just... Because the idea of the Cybermen aren't quite fully formed, and we're still very much in that 60s pulpy B-movie era of um, just the idea of robotic humans is scary enough. That, I, and I think he explores it more in spare parts of just like these early Cybermen. They are still people. They've had. Th- th- there's no need for conquest, or you will be like us. But it is. Ju- it's a need for survival, and they're still trying to hold on to vestiges of their humanity. Yeah, yeah. There is. Yeah, definitely. And I think. What I think what what Mark Platt really understands about those kind of tenth planet Cybermen is that I think they are the most terrifying because they're the ones that most, as ridiculous as this might sound to people that know what they look like, but they are the ones that are the kind of the most human like. Yeah, because it is just this kind of weird, perverse exaggeration of what a human being would look like with kind of technological augmentation. Yeah. So you know, it's the hands, it's the the kind of the little cloth thing pulled over their face, and then you've got this massive fucking headlamp on top of them. Yeah. And, and the version, the version of them on the cover to this, I think, is might even go down as the definitive version of that of those Cybermen because it, it's skeletal and gaunt and perhaps a bit too. I know there was a version of the costume for World Enough and Time and stuff that was the mask was kind of see-through and you could oh, kind of right, see okay. a gaunt thing underneath, but they thought it was too terrifying. And it's been, it's been out there on the internet for a while. I think it was a, an exhibition somewhere. But this is like that image, and I think that image probably helps, if you've seen the cover before you've watched it, probably helps sell it even more. That the body horror element of the Cybermen that is always so lacking in in the main show for obvious reasons. You get a Cyberman without legs but has three arms Mm. to help him move around. 
Yeah. It is it is a bit like Todd Browning's Freaks. Yeah. Like it's not a freak show, but I feel like Platt's pulling from that kind yeah, of thing, you know. It it is like again, it's if there's all these cracking ideas in there, but it's just drawn out over four episodes. It feels have you ever listened to Jago and Lightfoot? No, I haven't actually. So um, there's so lot, much of it, Dylan. There's so there much is so much of it. Life. Yes, that there is far too much of it. But there's also some cracking stuff in there, especially in the first sort of five or six series. Uh, the first five or six, like that's a, an easy go to. Um, You're like one of those cunts that say, "Oh, The Walking Dead gets really good." At, I mean, you are one of those cunts, <laughs> but uh, The Walking Dead gets really good after series four. So what? Yeah, but I'm also Who has one. The time? <laughs> yeah, but I'm one of those people that will also tell you don't bother with The Walking Dead, even though I'm still watching. But you and Richie are always going, oh, I'll start at the Next Generation series five. That's where it. That's where it all starts popping off. <laughs> but it's easier to just jump in than that. <laughs> very true. Very true. Um, so this feels a lot of the elements to it feel like a lot of the stuff they do in Jago and Lightfoot, but again, they right. do it in 50 minutes to an hour per episode. Um, and even the villain in this piece feels like a bit of a knockoff Jago to me, almost. Um, yeah, I know what you mean. A kind of impresario. Yeah. But with a bit more kind of unsavory yeah. intentions. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, and I'm sure Mark Platt's probably written for that range as well and done some good stuff. But... I just come back to it all being really rather mediocre and just plodding along to get to quite an exciting fourth episode. But also, the Doctor and Mary Shelley are really kind of bystanders here. Like, they don't affect the plot an awful lot. They run around a lot. And ultimately, the Cybermen are going to do what the Cybermen are going to do. The baddies are going to do what the baddies are going to do. And they all sort it out by themselves without really an influence. The only bit you get is a post-credit sting which doesn't pay off it's of this kind of mannequin doctor isn't it sort of yeah being part of a spectacle affair but i i i don't have too much of an issue with the doctor mary shelley being um bystanders in this because i think the whole concept of and, and don't get me wrong i haven't listened to the other two because I think I just was like I oh, can't be asked no. you know when it when it first came out but the the concept is that it's the kind of grand tour. It's the doctor, yeah, sort of showing Mary Shelley all this stuff so that she can then be inspired to become one of the great sort of sci-fi writers of her time, mm. of all time. You know, depending on, on what you want to do. Um, so I think that's fine. I think it. There's some weird things it does. Like again, it kind of it it zeroes in on Shelley's compassion. I think. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of her pleading with the Doctor to kind of see the human behind the Cyberman to the point that you go, yep, I also enjoyed Dalek. <laughs> um, there's a bit of that. And I think, actually, weirdly, um, have you listened to... Oh, God, I can't remember the name of it now. The Metropolis one. Yes, Mike's I have, Doctor yeah. Doctor Audio, yeah. He's on the set of Metropolis and some... It's handled a bit better there, right? Similar impresario. Only 50 minutes, yeah. Yeah. But I feel like that's a kind of rehash of this, but done yeah. slightly better. Because again, it's well, it's Germany rather than Austria, but it's yeah. you know, it's a very similar kind of storyline. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you think of kind of Mary Shelley in this compared to Mary Shelley in Villa Diodati? I mean, I don't. 
I can see what they're going for. I don't particularly like her in it. Like, I can see why they got rid of her after three kind of stories. And it's that thing that Stephen Moffat and people have often said about what do you do if you've got a companion that is from the Victorian era or whatever era. It just doesn't quite... It You've got to explain everything to them. I do like that they play on the fact that she's not actually comfortable with being a time traveller. Yes. Um, and she sort of freaks out about being turned into puppet and runs away from the Doctor because she doesn't know him, which is the sort of thing the new series does from time to time of like, oh, mm. I barely know you, but it's not quite done with such theatricality. Um, and, you yeah. know, she's desperate not to be turned into a puppet because that's the most terrifying thing she could think of. Um, I like, you know, she cries at one point about not belonging in this time. And yeah. I, I do think those are great moments. But also, and as a little sidestep, it's interesting, but actually, like, I don't want my Doctor and Companion duo to be like this. I want them to be bezies. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think there's there's something... It touches on something interesting. And I know it, because it's Big Finish, it won't do anything with it, but it does touch <laughs> on something interesting. In the bit where the Doctor's kind of going, oh, God, like, I've been incredibly reckless. I've, you know, brought this like, important historical figure with me, what if she dies? I've yeah. completely, like, ruined the future. And that's great because it takes place before Storm Warning. Yeah. It, it it actually kind of sets up the Eighth Doctor's character in those kind mm. of first couple of series of of audios where he, he saves Charlie Pollard and, you know, pays the price for meddling with time on such a kind of individual level. It's a really yeah. nice touch, but it doesn't really kind of go anywhere because oh, she's back it's fine it's all yeah. it's, it's all okay <laughs> mm. so i'm just i'm just left empty with it all and like there were times where i had to rewind it because i'd lost interest but other times <laughs> i was just kind of going i'm not sure what's going on here and i don't think that's because i'm not paying attention no i, just... I think my main issue was i i couldn't differentiate between mitzi and mary yes both yeah. their voices sounded very, very similar mm. to the point. So when Mitzi first turns up, when Mary and the Doctor first meet Mitzi, yeah. and she's crying, I was like, "Why is Mary and Shelley just suddenly bursting into yeah. tears?" And you're like, "Oh wait, no, it's it's this other person that just wandered mm. into the scene." Uh, and it, all all the support cast again are just a bit kind of they're just a bit like there's there's no like big guest casting as far as no. I know. David all, Schneider's, I think, the biggest name yeah. in it. But it's all people who are getting paid to come into a studio for an afternoon and deliver some lines. Like, I don't feel like the director's getting the best performances from them. Like, they're giving their best performances. It just all... Even the sound design, and I know Big Finish from this time with great sound design, Mm. it all just feels like a little lacklustre and a bit like, well, we've got to get a release out this November or whatever it is, so we better just make sure that it's all serviceable. Well, I mean, that makes sense, given what mm. you said earlier about mm. them kind of being close to folding. But Yeah. Because I wonder, because I've, I've, I've heard stories that, you know, the Tom Baker and the David Tennant ranges make them money, but everything else kind of just ticks along. I, I do wonder if the, the Eighth Doctor range was kind of that as well, because yeah. that was... Like, that, let's be honest, that's what put Big Finish where they are now, is yeah. those Eighth Doctor audios. A hundred percent, and I think that's why there's all there was suddenly this move to like, no, we've got to do something new. And yeah, he was in his own range 
way before i know nicholas briggs had always wanted to turn it into box sets of other people but mm-hmm. for the fan i think fandom and people at big finish were worried people wouldn't respond to it but i think like it always felt special when paul mcgann was dropping when a paul mcgann release was dropping and it also felt special when the first tom baker series dropped in the same way but uh Oh, by energy of the Daleks, we were all over that. <laughs> <laughs> I know, so I don't know, like, I still jump into Big Finish and indeed the Eighth Doctor, but I don't know whether I'll ever be that invested again. I, it would probably take Doctor Who the TV series going off air for me to really go, do you know what, I'm going to go back and do all the Eighth Doctors from the start or something. But, like, right now, I, I've got a job. <laughs> <laughs> good, good I mean, things to do. I'm rewatching Breaking Bad for fuck's sake. It's Paul McGann's, but it was Paul McGann's birthday yesterday as well. Look at, look yeah. at, look at where happy we birthday, now. Paul McGann. Um, he looks for, he's 63. I know he looks better than I do, and I'm 39. <laughs> I, I think for me, it's a bit sad that he's now become like McCoy and Davison and Baker. Yeah, it's just we, like, we, more we're past the, the peak. We're past yeah, the peak of like. I remember Richie saying when the first Eccleston box set came out, he's like, oh, I'm going to just enjoy this before it becomes just like, you know, just this same. Yeah. Like just, just you know, just de- like just a routine kind of, oh, th- th- here's the new Eccleston. Here's yeah. the new, you know, and it, you know, it it's nice when it feels special. Yeah. But I just, I don't think there's even like, I know they did the Lucy Miller box set again recently. I listened to the first one and I was just like, do you know, not the whole box set, just the one. And mm. I was like, do you know what? That was quite good, but I just want to stop myself there. Because- I So I listened to that box set because, but it was purely nostalgia. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it, was, it was just like, oh, it's really nice to hear Paul McGann and Sheridan Smith together again. Mm. Do you know? Um, uh, and that is, let's be honest, what Big Finish's original yeah. remit was. <laughs> was nostalgia. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. But now they're doing their own nostalgia. Um, you know that they've said, I believe that it's been said that what they're looking at next as their big big sort of thing is the final days of the Seventh Doctor. I'm so tired. <laughs> didn't Long? I mean, speaking of Mark Platt, didn't Longbarrow just kind of go oh. uh, like the, at the end of Longbarrow? It's like, oh, can you go and pick up the Master's body from Scarrow? Yeah. yeah, no bother. There and in the in the comic strip as well, with the one that kills off Ace that we've done it on Too Hot for TV, but I can't remember what it's called. Grand Zero. I'm trying to think if I've got much more to say about this. I don't think I have much more to say. Um, I feel like we've fit- rambled on incoherently about this era as a whole. But, but this not- is good because you, you get your revenge on me now because I've got to edit this. <laughs> so. that's, very, that's very true. Um, <laughs> and in fact, once once we hang up this Zoom call, I've got to go back to editing you on another part. So it's all nah, very you got, you got eight days till the anniversary. <laughs> Fine, just have a, nice, have a nice evening. You've had enough of my voice. Very true. Very, maybe I will. Maybe I will. Um, very true. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know what I will say? I think Nick Briggs gives a fantastic performance. If I'm going best performance, Nick Briggs mm-hmm. gives the best performance in this for me. Like, I think he's great as both of the Cybermen. Um, 
I think you get a lot of nice interactions between the Cybermen and Mary having a chat about the nature of survival. And we get the first use of one of the Cybermen going, prone, which will obviously yes. come back later on. And I, it's very easy to take the piss out of Nick Briggs, but I think when he smashes the shit out of a performance of a monster, he does smash the shit out of it. I'm thinking here, I'm thinking World Nothing Time, I'm thinking Resolution as well, or Revelation, mm. whatever it's called, like... He he is capable of doing very good things with the classic monsters. Yes, yes. I mean, he played a sexy Dalek in Asylum of the Daleks. Isn't he? <laughs> he did. He's, the man, always, he's always the, been a the sexy Dalek talent. to me. He is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think my favourite performance, just purely by you know dint of we don't talk about him enough, is Paul McGann. Yeah. I think you know there is some you know quite lackluster material, but I absolutely adore. Like it's it's one of those great things when Big Finish is really good. Yeah. It's when you're listening to to Big Finish and you can visualize the scene. Yeah. And that scene towards the end of part one where they're all in the tent or wherever it is, and the Cyberman's playing the piano. Yeah. And the eighth doctor's just like Ludwig would be fucking furious. <laughs> He's just like plonking his, you know, dead yeah. hands on the keys and stuff. It's and then he kind of, you know, stands up and it's great it's like proper doctorish moment um yeah and you can see like you can see how that would look and and how great that would be um so yeah it's it's, it's a began never gives anything less than a fucking great doctor performance he absolutely doesn't even when he's running around not con- contributing much to the plot it's been fun to kind of because as this podcast reaches the very end uh it's We've got to try it, new things. <laughs> oh, come on, you're, you're going to do Torchwood, right? Could you imagine that? Torch, uh, was, I'm sure it was J.R. Southall who recommended you match up an episode of Torchwood and an episode of the Sarah Jane Adventures. <laughs> I am there for that, 100%. That, I, I feel like that is like quite a good birthday episode. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't want to do them all? Weird. <laughs> no, no. Thank you, Dylan. Do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, I do a podcast called Doctor Who Too Hot for TV, which uh, Mark will be on the most current episode, either just come out or just about to come out when this drops, um, I imagine. Find us everywhere everywhere you get your podcasts. We look at the Doctor Who expanded universe, anything that isn't the TV show. Uh, and I'm also Dylan Does Who on Twitter. And it is my favourite Doctor Who podcast. That's very uh, kind of you to say. say. Uh, so next time, fucking hell, we've got Ascension the Cybermen and the Timeless Children. Now, I'm still not entirely sure what we're going to do for this. So I was speaking to somebody the other day and they were like, oh, so, you know, you're going to do them separately. You should do you know, them separately. And I was like, should we do them separately? Yeah, you should, absolutely. They're, they're, they're two very different. And especially as you're coming to the end, like... It's why I said earlier that I Ascension of the Cybermen is one of my favourite stories of the era. And I do like The Time of Children a lot, but they are very different. So I say, one of them is very much a Cyberman story and one of them is very much a Doctor Master Time Lord story. But have you got any decent ones of those left? Well, I think we have uh, The Wheel in Space. Oh, wow. Revenge of the Cybermen. Oh, fucking hell. You haven't done Revenge of the Cybermen? Yeah, I'm thinking Revenge of the Cybermen. And there's some links to... Gallifrey, because the Vogans yeah, have the, the wrestler, yeah. yeah. 
All right. Well, that ruins my joke that I was going to make. Oh, shit. Uh, I guess the Timeless Children would be a Christmas special. Right. You know, it's returning home. Uh, you know, it's having a big old argument with a belligerent family member. And with that in mind, uh, we're bringing the podcast's own elderly family member, J.R. Southall, to talk to us <laughs> about the Timeless Children because he's one of its staunchest defenders. Um, and I thought it might be quite fun to get him on. Um, so we're definitely pairing up the Timeless Children with the Deadly Assassin because I want to talk about more of the reactions to both of those stories yeah. than the connections between those two stories. Although the connections between those two stories are very obvious. It's, you know, it's mm. Gallifrey, it's the Master of... Um, but what has happened to the magic of Doctor Who? But yeah, I think you're right. I think maybe we should do Ascension of the Cybermen separately. But until next time, I've been Mark. I've not been Ben. I've been Dylan. Uh, and here to play us out as ever is Mr. Kef McCulloch. You can cut this if you want, but I saw on Twitter the um, just after Power of the Doctor, there was somebody I followed who hadn't seen it and had stayed away from the end and stayed off Twitter, but she was working in a, either a TV or theatre production with David Tennant, who came in and basically just went, well, now that I've got the Sonic back and completely spoiled the ending for her because she had no idea who was going to show up. What a cunt. Yeah, I know. <laughs> He's so fucking delighted, didn't he? He'd be back as Doctor Who. <laughs> what a prick. He's going to do it forever. <laughs>